0: You are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Law, And we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students' past and present. Hey everyone, Megan here. Today, for our final Faith and Science interview, I'm here with Jewish physicist Miriam Rafailovich.
1: I'm Miriam Rafalevich. I was born in Bucharest, Romania, and I emigrated to the United States with my parents when I was going to first grade. I uh, went to Brooklyn College, followed by Stony Brook University, where I got my PhD in nuclear physics. I did a postdoc. And I had a faculty position at the Weizmann Institute in Israel. Now a a distinguished professor in material science and chemical engineering at Stony Brook University.
0: As you already know, this interview is going to be about faith and science. But mainly we're going to go through your personal background, your excitement about your faith, how you found your way into science, and what faith do you practice? And can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to practice your faith? I'm Jewish.
1: <laughs> I am, as my son recently did, I think twenty three and me or something. And to our great surprise it said that he was ninety nine point ninety nine percent Eastern European Jewish. I I practice the Jewish religion, and I enjoy it, and it's part of me and my community, my kids.
0: Um, Can you tell me a bit about some of the most common or well-known rituals and obligations? And are there any little-known rituals within your religion that immediately connect you back to it?
1: The best-known, actually, ritual, which I practice, and at the moment so do all my Chinese graduate students, is Shabbat. (laughs) Shabbat, everybody needs Shabbat. Shabbat is Sabbath, it's like in English, it means a day of rest. The Jews keep Saturday, Christians keep Sunday, and Muslims have it on Friday. And Shabbat is something that's very pleasurable. It's really a day of peace and quiet and reflection and where you stop the everyday routine and you really reflect on who you are, what you are and what you're about. Shabbat is like this, we prepare for it ahead of time in that we have two well-defined meals, maybe a little bit more with family and we cook, we invite friends, neighbors, or we are invited to friends and neighbors. We also take it as the time to, to learn and to study things that are not related to our job or to our profession. Some of us lecture, And again, I prepare for that and I read about that and I read what other people have to say or I listen to what my friends have to say. So it becomes a holiday that you celebrate. Yes, you're celebrating your religion when you identify, let's say, between you and God, but it's also something that brings you closer to your friends, regardless of their religion. It's just a time when you, a moment where all your worldly obligations like in earning a living and paying your rent details like that are gone and you can focus on the people around you and what brings you together.
0: So with the second question other than Shabbat are there any like little known rituals within your religion that immediately connect you back to your religion? Yes
1: uh, there is prayer. We, I, I pray every day. Food I eat kosher. <laughs> kosher food is according to the orthodox definition, is you don't eat meat and milk together, and even only eat certain animals. And seafood, you don't eat, you can eat fish that have fins and scales. And that's about it. And, and it gets to be a little bit complicated because in modern and the modern food industry, there are a lot of derivative products uh, like gelatin, softeners, emulsifiers mm-hmm. that come from animal products. So you avoid those. Pretty much
0: it. It's not that hard. Uh, What is it about keeping kosher that connects you back to your religion?
1: I don't really go away from my religion, so I don't have to be connected. (laughs) It's it's a way of life. It's really a way of life to eat kosher. It's like vegetarians, you know, they don't think all day I'm not eating cow. (laughs) They just don't. So it's the same thing with eating kosher, you
0: just uh, So can you tell me about what it's like, what it was like to grow up in a religious environment?: Uneventful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> totally unlike It's like growing up in any other environment. Every household has its rules. every household has the way they do things. And in my household, we ate kosher. My relatives were Jewish. Uh, there were different degrees of, of Jewishness. There were some who were very orthodox and wore Hasidic garb. There were others who didn't. Uh, there were others who were not observant at all. It was the whole spectrum. What did make an influence on me, and especially on me because of my age, is that my parents were Holocaust survivors. So it wasn't so much what religion you were or what flavor of religion you were, it was the fact that being Jewish uh, it was like a race, not a religion. And to this day in Russia, your race is Jewish, not Russian. I come from Romania, as I said. And there, too, the reason we left Romania was because Romania was, was uh, believed in repatriation of people. And all Jews will be repatriated to Israel because even though Jews had been in Romania on the pale for a thousand years, they never, quote, belonged to those places. They were always ostracized. Whether you felt Jewish or not, it was branded on your back. And I didn't feel it because I was too young, but my parents knew that. I had an older sister. She couldn't get into university because she was Jewish. You had no rights, so you were a fifth column in that country because you were two. So growing up, hearing those stories made me feel lucky that I didn't have experienced that.
0: Uh, that sounds like a tremendous weight to bear that growing up. That's really, that's really interesting. It, it
1: makes a very big difference between people, you know, your grandparents, unfortunately that generation is now almost gone. But if you speak to anybody who was a survivor of the Holocaust or who lived in Europe, or not just Europe, but in Israel, you meet people who lived in the Arab countries around that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the sheikhs at that time had aligned themselves with Hitler. And they were waiting for him to come and take over the Middle East. And later on, up to 1956, they had mass expulsions from the Arab countries. And they also knew that they were Jewish who were branded from Yemen, from Morocco, from Tunisia, from Libya. You heard terrible stories. that were even more recent, the Ethiopian Jewry who came to Israel in the 80s had similar stories. So you really felt very fortunate to have grown up in America where these issues didn't exist. So I never really felt that. So, but listening to... Their stories. I felt very lucky, fortunate that I had this opportunity, and I realized the sacrifices they made to come away from where they were. That was their language, their household, and they left everything so that they would give their children a better future and not know that kind of discrimination or racism.
0: After growing up in that environment, how did you eventually become interested in science and STEM and were there any early influences for you?
1: Yeah, the environment had nothing to do with STEM
0: or science.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, the Jewish schools taught everything. <laughs> um, they had every subject. We took every the same regions everybody else did in New York State. It's just what I liked. I liked when I was growing up, I liked astronomy a lot. I really liked, I would take out all the kids' books on astronomy and the stars I liked looking at uh, you know little clips on TV that had about science. I just liked it, and Mm. I also knew I didn't like English. My worst nightmare was coming back from school after vacation and had a blank sheet of paper, and the teacher would say, "Now write what I did during the summer," (laughs) and my answer would be nothing. (laughs) 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 So I have to fill up that whole entire page. But I liked science. It was always something. Something new, something fresh. I really enjoyed science. And I knew that from very early on. Then when I went to college, uh, I don't know that expression, but when you're watching a ball game from home, uh, and it's fun to watch the ball game from home, but it may not be fun to be in the field. Astronomy is a lot of fun, but my, it was not my idea of having a life going through a telescope, looking at dark little objects all day, and rather read about it. But I discovered that I really liked physics. I just loved everything about physics and math. In Brooklyn College, I met people that were just building a nuclear accelerator and I enjoyed nuclear physics. And uh, as an undergraduate, I was doing a lot of research in nuclear physics. Then I met some wonderful people who were doing, at that time, biology and biochemistry was coming into its own. Enjoyed reading about DNA and genes stones. And I also enjoyed computers. I mean, I loved college. It was so much to learn. (laughs) I majored in a whole bunch of things just because I liked it. What did you major in? I majored in physics. I majored in biology and mathematics. (laughs) They're connected. (laughs) And after you take a dual curriculum, like in a Jewish school where you're like taking stuff all day, college is easy. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so that was, that was kind of my next follow-up question because you mentioned that you went to a Jewish school. Can you tell me about what that was like?
1: Yeah, I went to a Beit Yaakov. Beit Yaakov is a, is a girl's school. And uh, we had Hebrew studies in the morning and the secular studies in the afternoon. Hebrew studies, we learned Hebrew very well. We learned to read ancient Hebrew texts <laughs> and analyze them. Uh, We learned to speak, more or less, Hebrew. Not great, but we learned to speak and read. Then in the afternoon, we had the regular New York City high school curriculum, math, English, lots of English, science.
0: (laughs) You mentioned earlier that you weren't so great in some of your English subjects. Were you uh, a good student in your Hebrew subjects?
1: Yes, well, Hebrew is different because i like I like studying Hebrew I mean I'm good at languages I like studying languages, and I think it comes it comes easy again in Romania, no one speaks Romanian, okay, except Romanians <laughs> so if you want to travel in Europe, if you want to do anything else, you have to learn other languages so every Romanian I know knows three or four languages, so it is not uncommon in a household to have a bunch of languages spoken at the same time by different people. You just grew up with that. Hebrew, throw it into the pot, no problem. (laughs) I can speak Hebrew. I really enjoyed reading Israeli literature because Israeli literature was both funny, Mm -hmm. but it was also based on on Jewish history, Jewish experience. And that's the history of my people, which you don't really get like if you're in general, you're in a public school. Learning history that directly pertains to you and where you came from and your background was something I enjoyed.
0: Were there people in your religious community or family who were supportive of your interests in science and accolades from your scientific achievements?
1: I I don't know about accolades, but everybody was very supportive. They wanted me to go to college. (laughs) They had to. (laughs) They wanted me to get a good job. (laughs) Um, Getting a good college education means you have a job you enjoy. It's not just you know, working, because you can work. And my husband always said that as a kid, he had a summer job in the American can company. I think he was putting pop tops on cans or something. And he said that taught him he had to go to college (laughs) because he didn't (laughs) want to do that for the rest of his life. (laughs) So (laughs) if, if you want to have an occupation, you really enjoy where you make a difference. You need an education. And when you're having an education, you want to do something you really enjoy where you can make a positive contribution.
0: Um, yeah, actually,
1: a, a little bit of background about where my family comes from and support. My mother was one of the founders of the Girls of uh, Beit Yaakov movement in Europe. The Girls Education Movement, Education for Women in, in Jewish circles, was something at that time which was somewhat controversial. Mm-hmm. And it was really promulgated by, uh, yes, somebody called Sara Chenier, but it really became official by somebody called Dr. Leon Deutschlander. Dr. Deutschlander was, had a PhD in education from the University of Vienna. And he gathered young women from across the pale, and they had like a war map, like where to send them to start schools. But before he sent them there, he also sent them to school and to college so that they learn pedagogy. My mm-hmm. mother was mm-hmm. one of those. And uh, there are pictures of her, and somebody wrote a book recently, how she went in 1939 in a place mm-hmm. called Siegert. She was related to Elie Wiesel. She went to Siget, and she was well-known in Siget, And she started the first Bessiakov School, and there are pictures of her in all these books, the reminiscence. Uh, when we came to America, she came back again to pesiako where she took up again where they had left off in uh, general Jewish education. So she valued education a lot, especially higher education. So it was no problem.
0: Have you ever felt an internal or external conflict between being religious and being a scientist? And if so, what was that like for you? It's funny. Because people
1: assume that, they, that those two are somehow mutually exclusive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the answer is never. I mean, it's the other way around. In fact, <clears throat> that question also came up. I was on a panel at Stony Brook with, I don't know, somebody. And the first thing they asked, how can you be a scientist and be religious? And the, question, the answer was, why not? <laughs> because, in fact, according to the Rambam, when he talks about Shabbat, And he says that on Shabbat, one is supposed to break away from their business world. He said, you're technically not even, you're not supposed to read your stocks, obviously. Mm -hmm. But you're technically not even supposed to read a newspaper in the language of the country you're in, because that's going to get you concerned about your business. The only thing that he allows reading in any language that you want is science. He said, you can't study for your exams, but if you have an exam in science, go for it. Because understanding nature and the symmetry in nature and the beauty of nature is what makes people closer to God. And if you go to the Museum of Natural History here, uh, when they tell you the history of the universe, you know, you go all the way back to the Big Bang and it's God that said, let there be light. (laughs) So just understanding science, you're just sitting there saying, this is wonderful. This is amazing. This is fantastic. So there's no reason... That there should ever be any controversy. In fact, religion says that God is science. God created the world, so and He created it according to beautiful laws of science, infinite beauty in science. And, you know, one doesn't practice science. Science practices you. <laughs> I mean, it's not up to us to practice science. It, it is what it is. There are immutable laws of nature. Yeah. The, the big controversies come in when humans say something and then because i said it it must be so right then when it's proved that it's not so then i take offense and then i start saying bad things about the person who's against me but that doesn't change the
0: fact graduate school can be challenging for anyone with or without faith time and pressure within graduate school are real drivers for anxiety and also for imposter syndrome given all of the additional commitments that you are dedicated to outside of your PhD, was there a point in your PhD where you were tempted to skip any of those traditions? And why did you decide to or not to break with your faith? Having lived a long time past
1: my graduate school career and still being in an academic setting working with graduate students, I can safely tell you, unfortunately, guys, the best time of your life is when you're a graduate student. (laughs) I hate to disappoint you, but it gets a lot worse after that. In terms of pressures, later on you're constantly meeting deadlines and grants. Where if you don't get that grant, or if the governor has a fight with the president, or the president with the governor, or someone at your school does something that's totally out of your control, and they decide to cut funds to the university, then people's salaries are cut off. People will go home to children and they won't have enough money to buy food for the weekend. That's pressure. The the temptation was not graduate school is great. Graduate school is when you're exploring. That's when I met my husband. You've got, you're young, you're maybe haven't got much money, but I had more disposable money in graduate school than later on with kids (laughs) and bills and home and and all the adult yucky stuff you guys don't want to think about. When you look back, you'll see it. Graduate school is a time of challenge, of change. It's very cool. And when you're talking about your faith, the problem with faith is that being Jewish is a community thing. You very much rely on the community. You're looking at the mirrors around you. It's very difficult and it's very sad and very lonely to be the only Jew on the block. And it doesn't work that much because you have, like I said, Shabbat is a communal meal. If you're the only person saying Kiddush to yourself, buying tuchalas only for yourself, that's when these doubts start to come up, saying, am I the last dinosaur alive? Did you have a good Jewish community to connect with? Yeah, sure. That's why I went. These are choices you make. When you select where you're going to go, the school you go to, the neighborhood you go to, the first thing you do is you look at the neighborhood and see, are there people there that are like me, where I'll have a community, so you're not alone. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why I went to Brooklyn College and then went to Stony Brook, I could have not gone, I could have gone somewhere else, but I went to Stony Brook because I would be close to the Jewish community. Stony Brook itself doesn't have a large one, but it's there, and I can go home every weekend to my parents or to my community in, in Brooklyn.
0: Leaving your PhD program to be with your parents, to be with your community, did that impact your professional relationships at all? No, not at all. In fact, I had professional relationships during the week. Yeah.
1: And even on weekends, sometimes I stayed in Stony Brook. They had a, a, a minion in Stony Brook on Shabbat. There was a Stony Brook congregation. It's not as big and multivariate as you have in other neighborhoods, but it was plenty. It was okay for a graduate student. And I also enjoyed bringing people back to my community, showing them what it's like. Uh, I became very friendly with my, there was a postdoc who was my advisor, nuclear physics, nuclear physics at the time. And I think even now was really dominated by Germany. And, uh, my direct supervisor was a postdoc who was visiting from Erlangen in Germany and later on Konstanz, And he was an amazing person. In fact, he was the nephew of one of Hitler's uh, close inner circle. His name was Gunter Schatz. And Schatz was the, his father, he said, was the architect of the Reich. He, uh, when the allies came in, he committed suicide. He swallowed something because they knew that he was gone. And he remembered the American troops coming in and handing out chocolate, he was a kid. And uh, he, very well-educated person. He was in awe of Jewish people. He tried to make good. And in fact, he said he went to Israel in the 60s when he was, I guess, a postdoc or a graduate student when you talk about being brave. And he said people spat on him. They spoke beautiful German, because there are a lot of people from Germany in Israel, but they were so traumatized. Mm -hmm. And he said he understood. And uh, later on, when I went to Israel for four years, he was by that time a senior professor, and he was instrumental in having something called the Minerva Foundation. The Minerva Foundation gave millions and millions of dollars in research to Israel. That helped build up at Jerusalem University. And later on, when he retired, we met him recently, he's now an elderly gentleman. But when he retired, he ran a foundation to promote science in Tel Aviv. So I met him at Stony Brook, and we became very good friends. And my mother, being Viennese, could speak Constance kind of German to him. So it was, it was very nice. Wow. So we respected each other's religion.
0: Everybody's
1: interested in everybody else's culture.
0: Right. Now, but I wanted to just ask you if you had like any closing thoughts on faith and science um, or if there's anything you think we didn't cover um, in the interview and whether or not you'd want to add anything. No, I, I think just
1: the summary, there There was never any issue between faith and science. They're really not. That's, not, that's a non-issue. Your faith is more of a way that you conduct yourself and your way of life. And it's true. There are times when there is no kosher food or when there's a, a fantastic event that you know you feel like you absolutely shouldn't miss it's on shabbat um or and then you say oh should i make compromises how far should i go i'll sit there i'll give you an example mm-hmm. i was invited to you know because in the other cases when it's not like something serious it's very easy to say i'm jewish it's fine i like it you know my mother made the food and I went home. Okay, done. That, that's like not, not too much of a challenge, I will say. I was invited to give a lecture in Alexandria, Egypt, back in just before Mubarak fell, literally just before Mubarak, like I think it was 2012. So I was invited to speak at a conference on stem cells. Now, in addition to being politically a horrible place, the depth of anti-Semitism over there was mind boggling, you can't imagine, you just can't. I mean, they were just they were just sitting there waiting to get you. I was told by several colleagues that when going there, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. When we got there, they knew I was Jewish. Uh, we were in a hotel And they immediately had someone watch us. At the conference, they wouldn't let anybody talk to us. Egypt is a very funny place. Egypt is, it's like a two-tiered society. The people are wonderful, some of the nicest, the people. But then there was the government. And the government people had their line and they're extremely oppressive. People don't do anything until five o'clock when these guys go away and then life starts. And uh, they wouldn't let anybody speak to us during lunch. The only time we mingled with them was after 10 o'clock at night when Egypt comes alive. It's actually beautiful at night. Now the first starting day of this conference was on Shabbat. And on one hand, I don't wanna be there on Shabbat because it's not appropriate. On the other hand, if I don't go at all and they're paying and they're already anti-Semitic to that extent, so it was a quandary what we should do. So what my friend and I did was we let the conference go on and then everything was by buses because they wanted to know where you were. So during in the morning we missed the bus and then we walked for about two and a half hours like in Egypt, which is very scary because we didn't know where we were and nobody spoke English, but they were really nice people. So we made it I found the place we walked there and uh, we just hung around in the back sat around a little bit and it was Shabbat was over and then we were able to go back on their pre-assigned buses as so they saw we were there this is the kind of trials where you know you feel like what should I do but it, it wasn't at no time that I think of Wouldn't it be great if I didn't keep it? I I never, never for a moment when I was in this situation that I feel like, oh, wouldn't it be great not to have to keep the Shabbat? Right. It was like, wouldn't it be be great if I got out of here really fast? (laughs) It was, I remember the principal when I was in eighth grade, I went to uh, Ayeshiva, Brooklyn. And the principal at that time was retelling a story about, it was at the time of Rashi. And he said that the crusades were coming into town and this this woman was being trampled by a horse. And then afterwards she said that for a moment when the horse was on top of me that I think, I want to be a horse, <laughs> so <laughs> I felt <thought laughs> the same way. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Secret Life of a Graduate Student. Next week, we bring Miriam, Tyler, and Abigail together to discuss some ongoing questions we have about faith and science, and also advice for religious and non-religious graduate students. If you like this episode and want to hear more, hit the like and subscribe button. Till next time, bye!